0: This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let's look at God's Word together. Luke 3, beginning in verse 23. Jesus, when He began His ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jenai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Moth, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joshek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Milcai, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Elijah, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elachim, the son of Meliah, the son of Minna, the son of Mathiah, the son of Nathan the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashlon, the son of Abinadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arfax, Adad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, Luke was inclined to write these things down for us. Lord, we pray that you would shape our hearts and minds to understand and appreciate lists like this that solidify that these are not mere stories. These are real people that lived and died and that you are real, and that you came to love us and die for us, and that we need you. So we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. Open our eyes to behold Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. I came across a, a story from Wycliffe Bible Translators that illustrates, I think, the power of genealogies. When a Bible translator in Papua New Guinea started to translate Matthew's gospel, he thought, the last thing I want to do is to bog these people down with a genealogy. So he began with chapter two. Some of you may be agreeing with him. And the day came when all the other chapters were done. He called together the men who were helping him, and they decided the best way to say the word begot. So bringing a child into the world. So-and-so begot, so-and-so. And they proceeded with Matthew chapter one, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat, etc. And by the time they completed about six of these begats, the translator noticed, he got the sense that the men were becoming excited. And one of them stops and says, do you mean that these were real men? And they asked, yes, he answered, they were real men. And the man said, well, this is what we do. They added, referring to the custom of keeping track of genealogies. We had thought that these were just white men's stories. Do you really mean that Abraham was a real man? Yes, the translator said, that's what I've been telling you. We didn't know that, they said, but now we believe. That night they were gathered in the village together and they said, listen to this. And they read the first chapter of Matthew. This chapter was the key for the belief of the entire tribe. So, there you go. I know we're inclined to skip, skim, whatever word you want to use, over genealogies. It is a list of names, as you just saw. But these lists serve as really powerful tools of confirmation of the truth of the gospel. They do testify this is not a made-up story, but that these are real people. And Luke is interested in the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to the first man. To Adam himself, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's Luke 1, verse 4. That you would see Jesus and who he is. That this is real. Jesus is real. He's not a demigod. He's David's son. Abraham's son. He's the son of God and he's the son of Adam. And that makes the gospel real good news for us today. Now, Luke is still closing out kind of an extended introduction of who Jesus is as we've been working through it together. It begins with John's testimony, John the Baptist, saying that Jesus is superior to me. I would increase, I would decrease, that he would increase. He's a superior judge and savior. He brings with him a superior baptism. I baptize with water, he baptizes with the Spirit and with fire. And then Luke shows us the Father's own testimony God the Father at Jesus' baptism. The heavens open and the spirit descends on Jesus in the form of the dove. And the father declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then right after that declaration of Jesus as the son of God, we get this genealogy. And I think that's significant to show kind of his, his human origins, his, his genealogy, the DNA evidence of who Jesus is, the son of God and the son of man. And the connection with Adam is, is clear, is it? That's the way that the genealogy ends. And he's establishing, Luke is establishing Jesus as the new representative for mankind. A federal head, a new head of mankind. And if he is our representative as fully man, that means he can fully save us. Anyone who calls out to him. So I'll state the main takeaway from this genealogy, just kind of in a poetic way. These are not my words. But I think they're helpful, so I'll mention this here, say it a couple times. Christ is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. He became a Son of Adam, that we, sons of Adam, might become sons of God. Christ, the Son of God, became a Son of Adam, that we, sons of Adam, might become the sons of God. We're going to see that as we think through, I hope, this this passage and think about it together. We're not going to go line by line. not going to mention every name. You'll be thankful to know that. I want to hold this genealogy up like a diamond and just kind of observe different angles and different things about it as it relates to its importance. I'm going to mention kind of three areas of point, importance, layers of importance that I think are related to the genealogy. If you're taking notes, there's three points. Number one, biology. Biology. So I think that's actually Luke's main interest uh, in who Jesus is, humanly speaking. And then we're going to say a few things about who we are biologically. So biology, number one. Number two, anthropology. Anthropology. And the study of man, what do we learn about ourselves from this genealogy theologically? What are some theological truths that we see that we can take away from this? And then finally, number three, Christology. What do we learn about Jesus? What do we see about Jesus? What do we take away about Jesus from this list? So may the Spirit be our helper this morning as we look to God's word. And first, let's think about it in terms of biology. Genealogies remind us what it means to be human. So we see like the basic patterns of human existence when we look at these lists. It it, it's pretty obvious, but it's here. It begins with childbirth. A man, a husband, father's children, and a woman, his wife, bears those children in her womb until birth. This is the fundamental building block of our lives. This is how life happens. This is how life continues. This should not need to be a, a point of application in my sermon, but it is because we live in a world where this fundamental building block, this cycle put in place by God that goes back to the very beginning is no longer seen as God's good design. Al Moeller puts it puts it well. I would commend Moeller to you if you're thinking through some of these cultural issues uh, just as a guide, um, helpful guide. He says, the most basic question in this controversy comes down to this. Has God created human beings as male and female with revealed intention for how we are to relate to each other? The secular world is now deeply committed to confusion on these matters. Denying the creator, the secular worldview understands gender to be nothing more than the accidental byproduct of blind evolutionary processes. Therefore, gender is reducible to nothing more than biology, And as the feminists' family argued, biology is not destiny. This radical rebellion against a divinely designed pattern of gender has now reached the outer limits of imagination. If gender is nothing more than a biological accident, and if human beings are therefore not morally bound to take gender as meaningful, then the radical gender theorists and the homosexual rights activists are correct after all. For if gender is merely incidental, To our basic humanity, then we must be free to make whatever adjustments, alterations, or transformations in gender relationships any generation might desire or demand. And of course, we're there. Elizabeth Elliott once reflected this. She said, throughout the millennia of human history, people took for granted that the differences between men and women were so obvious as to need no comment. They accepted the way things were. But as our easy assumptions have, made, have been assailed and confused, we have lost our bearings. So that I find myself in the uncomfortable position of having to belabor to educated people what was once per- perfectly obvious to the simplest peasant. So that's where we are. And, and, and we come to a list of, of people who got married and had children. And we just want to see that this is God's world and this is the way that it works. I don't think you need to be a Christian to see that. I think we have the, we have the, the common grace in our, in our lives deep down to know, our consciences know and understand how that biology works. One man with one woman producing children, that's how things move forward. Um, but we need to understand that we're in a world that, that needs help with this. And so I think we want to take the position that Paul did in Acts 17 when he was in the, kind of the marketplace of ideas in the, in the city of Athens, and he went in, and he was provoked by the idolatry that he saw. And he built from the unknown God a worldview of who God is. And starting there, saying, there is a God. And you're all accountable to this God. And he has made man in his own image. And he, he goes through to share the gospel that way. Friends, I think that's our task in evangelism today. Is to begin with God. Who God is. And make clear who he is. And what, what not only what he has done factually in creation. But how it represents his goodness and his character, it's reflected in Christian gender, in Christian marriages, uh, biblical manhood and womanhood, how it's reflected in, in fathers that lead and provide and mothers that nurture and support and children that obey and grow up as oaks of righteousness. So we don't apologize for the clear teaching of Scripture on marriage, on the family and gender and the goodness of God that lies behind it all. It is basic biology on one hand, but it is a designed biology that points to the goodness of God for our good and for God's glory. This is God's world. But there's another sense in which Luke's genealogy has a, a biological focus, and it's especially in his, the way that, that he focuses on Jesus. And I think we see it if you compare his, his genealogy with Matthew's genealogy. Some of you may have done that and been thinking about that. We need to understand that often in Scripture and other places, when these genealogies are done, they're done with differing purposes and aims. And I think that's what's happening when you look at Luke and Matthew. Uh, Matthew seems to be aimed at tracing the royal line of David down to the present through his rightful heirs. And and Luke is going to mention David and his heirs as well, but he's actually tracing more of a biological bloodline to Jesus. So Matthew is asking, who is the next king of Israel? And Luke is asking, who is this man's father? And, and, and this question kind of is, is noted there or maybe hinted at that parentheses in verse 20, 23. You have it in the SV, it's in parentheses. Being the son as was supposed of, of Joseph, the son of Heli. In other words, people, people thought this was the son of Joseph, right? But Luke has already told us that he was really the son of Mary by the Holy Spirit. And so most scholars agree that Luke is actually tracing Jesus' genealogy through Mary, not Joseph, which is what Matthew's doing. Matthew's chasing it through through the line of Joseph. Jesus was actually descended from David from two different lines, one from each side of his family. And so, in other words, Mary and Joseph are, are distant cousins. So Matthew's genealogy is paternal, tracing the family line through David's son, Solomon, down to Joseph, While Luke's is maternal, tracing the family line from David's son, Nathan, down through Mary. You see that in verse 31. So Jesus has this double claim to David's throne. He was the true king of Israel, both by legal succession and by blood. So I think this means that Heli is probably a reference to Mary's biological father, not Joseph's. Uh, Matthew's gospel lists Jacob as Joseph's father. So that said, it is possible that Joseph did become Heli's son uh, through adoption, which would have been common culturally. That sounds strange to our ears, but if Mary didn't have any other brothers, it would have been customary for her father to adopt one of his sons-in-law to be his heir, making Heli Joseph's adopted father by, by marriage. And so just keep this in mind as you kind of compare and contrast the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, their purposes, the main point, is that they have two different goals. Uh, one is to show Jesus as the rightful king, Matthew, and, and the other is to show him as an actual biological human who has the rightful claim to be the redeemer of all of humanity. But both are true and both are really good news. So that's kind of the biological just sense of focus there. That's about as much into science as I get. But to understand why we need a redeemer, we need to think more about the genealogy and what it tells us about the nature of man. And that's the second layer of importance I want to mention as it relates to anthropology. And that just is, I'm just using that as a general word, meaning the study of man, anthropology. So there's the biological reality we've seen, okay, related to reproduction. In order for a human being to exist, he must be conceived by mother and father, carried in a mother's womb, born into the world, we're male or female. And if the Lord chooses, we'll move from being children to becoming mothers and fathers husbands and wives again friends no longer do we take those those statements for granted we should teach our children we should talk about these things out loud this is what humans are this is what humans do in god's world but now there's also a theological anthropology that that i think this genealogy shows us so let's just make some observations here first this passage teaches us that there is one common humanity in adam in other words luke He's tracing all the human race, notice, back to one man. He is the original son of God. Verse 38, he refers to Adam as the son of God. He was not born of a woman, but made from the dust. So no belly button on Adam, maybe. We could talk about that at lunch. But this is the story of all humanity, right? It's it's how human life began. And there are many twists and turns along the way. And we we end up with many languages and peoples and skin colors and shapes and sizes and personalities with strengths and weaknesses. But we're all human, all descended from Adam. We did not evolve from animals. There's a clear distinction in creation between animals and humans. We didn't originate from ooze or accidental biological reactions. God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man in his own image, male and female. This is the worldview that the Bible gives us. So we don't have to wonder. We don't have to make something, something up from scratch. We don't have to grope in the darkness. Being made in God's image means that we reflect Him. We are, in a sense, His children, every human being. I wonder if you've thought about that. The accountability that you have to God as a human being. It's really crucial to understand if you want to know the gospel. Paul actually refers to this in Acts 17. As he's preaching in Athens, he says we are indeed his offspring, speaking to all of us. So every single human being carries with him or her this great value or worth made in the image of God, a created masterpiece to reflect the glory of God. But the Bible teaches, from the beginning, God's first son rebelled. And in him we have all Turned away from our father. Just think about that. If we all come from one man, we are in a sense in Adam when he sins at the fall. Adam sinned in the garden. He turned away from God's word and God's purpose and chose another way. And in doing that, he plunged all of us, all of us, all of humanity, as we were in Adam to this state of alienation from God in slavery to sin guilt before god this is something that you have in common with every other human on the planet so we have a common humanity and a common sin sometimes we might think of a genealogy as a list of family highlights maybe you've gone to do this in your own family tree and you've realized i wonder who i'm related to and you realize down the road you're actually related to somebody pretty famous maybe you saw some things that horrified you i don't know It could be either way, but these heroes and bright spots, it's how we think of it. I'm sure those are are true, but we we need to be reminded, even as we look on this list, in reality, this is a list of sinners like you and like me. One day we will be on a similar list. Someone's gonna ask in my family, maybe down the road, who was this? Travis Cardwell, my great, great, great grandkids, maybe. Interesting here in, in, in Luke's list of 75 names, The majority of these names are unknown. We don't know much about them in other biblical references. A large number are only mentioned here. Only here. Largely unknown. All qualified as sinners. Both with their relationship to Adam and by their actual sins. So we sin because we're sinners. And that's true for the names that we do recognize on this list, like Terah. He's Abraham's father. He was an idolater. Abraham. A lot of good things about Abraham, justified by faith. He was a pretty good liar. We we studied Abraham's life pretty well. We know about Abraham. We know about Jacob. Jacob's name means cheater. Judah. Judah was a slave trader, friend of prostitution. David committed adultery, covered it up with murder. And then there's Adam at the very bottom of the list. The OG sinner who literally turned his back on God in the garden. And not only did they they sin, the people on this list, they died, every last one of them, except one. You know who? Enoch, that's right. Enoch, Genesis 5, 24. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. But that's one exception. But most of these guys are not around anymore. Well, none of these guys are around anymore. Most lived only a short time on earth. Even the great Methuselah, who lived to be 969 years old, Genesis 5, 27, died. So there's something tragic about this list that we're supposed to see. Each name represents a story with a lifetime of joys and sorrows Hopes and fears, cares and troubles, plans and achievements, family. And we'll never know about them. We think that is normal. It's not. It's bad. It's sad. It's terrible. Each death carries with it this pain, loss, sadness. So these lists remind us that we'd better come to grips with Romans 6:23, the wages of sin is what? Death. The Lord told Adam and Eve you will surely die if you eat of the tree. And they did, and so does everyone else. This is what it means to be a human being. We need to face it. We're born, we live, we sin, because we sin, we die, and then we're forgotten. Sometimes people describe their upbringing as being from a broken home. And I know what that means. I know there are some very sad and specific stories about what that means in this room. But in a sense, no matter how good your home life or experience was growing up, we are all from a broken home. This is our family tree. Our parents, grandparents, great grandparents, great 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 grandparents were sinners all the way to Adam. So we have a common humanity, we have a common sin, and we experience a common death. Aren't you glad this isn't the end of the story? We've seen the importance of biology and the anthropology here in Luke's genealogy. A lot of biologies today, thank you. Now let's look at what we can learn about Jesus and we think about Christology. Remember, Luke is introducing Jesus to us. Before he shows us what he did, he wants us to know who he is. Okay, So instead of working from Abraham to Jesus like Matthew does, Luke goes the other way. He starts with Jesus and then works all the way back past Abraham, all the way down to Adam. He's the only gospel writer to, to record uh, Jesus' age at the time he begins his ministry. Uh, verse 23 says that he was about 30 years old. And I think this works like a symbolic, approximate age in Scripture for the appropriate Time to begin service to God, although I think it's Luke means it as his actual age. But if we look to other places, uh, like you could, you could begin to serve as a priest beginning at the age of 30, uh, Numbers 4-3. Uh, Joseph began to serve in Pharaoh's court at the age of 30, Genesis 41. Ezekiel was called to ministry at 30, Ezekiel 1. David began his reign at 30, 2 Samuel 5. So Jesus' connection with these Old Testament figures prophets, priests, kings, deliverers, rescuers, redeemers, that's no accident. Right? He's the culmination of all those offices and, and promises of God. Those are all yes and amen in him. I also think it's instructive to see at least a little hint here about patience and preparation. He was baptized at 30. I know this is a, maybe a different situation. Baptized at 30. He began his ministry at a time of maturity and did not, although he could have, rushed in earlier, maybe as a teenager, in his 20s. Jesus had a lot to contribute in his 20s. Perhaps there's something for us here to just learn about from this example. Looking back on my life, and I don't know if your life is the same, have things gone well that you've rushed into? or been patient with and and seen God kind of confirm decisions that you've made through patience and preparation? Jesus has something to say to this about discipleship, doesn't he? About counting the cost before we build a tower. Don't think because you're in your 30s, this is kind of a flipping the idea, because you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s, that now your ministry opportunity is over. You've missed that. Perhaps God is preparing you for something now. Perhaps He's been using this time to prepare you for what you're going to do now in the rest of your life, but you don't know how much that is. There's something about being patient and trusting God in our circumstances. I think we can learn here just from the, the, the age of Jesus as He walks into this beginning of His ministry. Of course, we can see this in Paul as well as He's saved and then immediately starts to preach. No, He dis- disappears for three years, He goes to Arabia. Walking with Jesus. There's great value in preparation and patience. I think we should hear that. So Jesus enters into his ministry at 30. But again, we're asking, who is he? We know the problem, right? Humanity's lost. We're plunged into darkness by our representative head, Adam, the first son of God, Luke 3.38. He's failed us. But now referring to Adam as the son of God, Luke is drawing a direct connection for us. Because, well, God the Father just called Jesus the son of God. He's saying that, it, is there another, right? Someone else who didn't have a biological father, who, who owed their descent to God himself, but who could walk in the very shoes of mankind and reverse the effects of sin and the fall. A new head, a new representative. So Luke hints at this when he, he puts Adam's name, I think, right before the temptation narrative in chapter four. Like we see Adam, son of God, Jesus walking in the wilderness temptation. That's not by accident. Where Adam failed, Jesus is gonna be faithful. Jesus' righteous life will fulfill the purposes for humankind made in God's image. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. And he will make atonement with his precious life for the sins of all those that would turn away from their sins and put their trust in him. So he'll go to a cross, take our place, turn away the wrath of God from his people by taking it upon himself. And three days later, rise from the grave. Here are just two passages that you might want to jot down that kind of unpack what that means. One is Romans 5, 18 and 19. Really just, you could look at the whole chapter of Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Luke is showing that there's a new head, a new representative that can undo the condemnation, that can reverse the curse. This is what theologians call the great exchange. We were condemned, guilty by virtue of our connection with Adam and our sin. And Jesus' act of righteousness, his life, his death, his resurrection, reverses all of that. It rescues us. And so by trusting in him, we're declared righteous before God, justified. His righteous standing becomes our righteous standing. Hope is born. Again, Paul says this, the other text, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thus it is written, this is verse 45 of 1 Corinthians 15. The first man, Adam, became a a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see the difference in these two sons of God. Luke is saying that the son of God, the son of man has come on the scene. And he has come to save us, to give us life, to give us the spirit, to make us alive. So that when we die, apart from his coming, everyone in this room will die so that when we die and are laid to rest we are laid to rest with hope a hope of a resurrection that means if i if i have the privilege of standing over your body on the day when you pass away and go to be with the lord and i stand over your body to say some words i can say these words from the book of common prayer written in 1662 with confidence, not confidence in myself, but confidence in the word of God. I'll say this. For as much as it pleased almighty God of his great mercy to take unto himself the soul of our dear brother here departed, we therefore commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be like his glorious body, according to the mighty working whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. That's what Jesus came to do. We are all people in Christ who can say with confidence, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? It is overcome. You've lost. The victory has been won by Christ friend I hope you know that victory turn to Jesus turn from your sins those two things go together turning from your sins turning to Jesus following Jesus trusting Jesus Luke is telling you he's the son of God he's the son of man he's the perfect only sufficient savior and his salvation is available to you would you trust him He's showing us that Jesus' work on the cross, his resurrection, pertains to everyone in the human race. He came to save people like us, like you and me. That's why he reminds us that we are of one family called humanity, with one disease called sin. And there is one savior named Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews says, therefore he had to be made like us, like his brothers in every respect. Hebrews 2.17 so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people, to turn away the wrath, a a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice that would turn away the wrath of God by taking it upon himself. He did that. And friends, now, um, today I'm gonna say amen and we're gonna pray and sing and be dismissed. We live right now in a tension, an already not yet tension between the resurrection and his return. That's where we live. That means we still struggle with sin. You'll be reminded of that probably this afternoon, that you're still a sinner. You're a saint who sins. Even though it's conquered, even though it's canceled, you still struggle. Our bodies still break down. Some of you may be thinking about that. Also, we still die. But now, instead of our story being simply, we're born, we live, we sin, and because we sin, we die, in a short time we will be forgotten. We can add to that, will also one day be resurrected. One day we will rise to a new body, to a risen and reigning savior. And then we will find our names on another list. Not a list of death, but one called the Lamb's Book of Life. And our names will be called, we will not be forgotten by Jesus. Your name can be on that list. Call out to him today. Because Christ is the son of, of God. He became a son of Adam, that we, sons of Adam, might become sons of God. For it doesn't get any more real than this. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you know us so well, and you know that our faith is often fragile, full of doubt, And you've given us such wonderful help in the Holy Spirit, in your word, and other believers, such wonderful help to strengthen us. I pray you would strengthen many in this room with your word and these wonderful truths that are the bedrock of our lives. Lord, we are leaky buckets. So thank you for continuing just to fill us with truth, for pursuing us, teaching us. Lord, we're so grateful We need you. We pray you would be exalted in our lives. Thank you for those in this church that live in ways that we know this is true. We see this all over this place. We're so grateful. Help us to live and die to the glory of Jesus. We ask it in his name, amen.